Welcome to Financially Free Podcast with your host, Nay Torres. One of the reasons Nay could retire when he was 25 years old is because he was coached by the best. And now through this podcast, so can you. I have a member with the stock of the week. And the idea is to talk to you guys about what other people see in the in different areas of finances, like the stock market. So real estate people can take a look at across the fence, to put it that way. And there's also some people that invest in stocks, but they normally don't do the small stuff that we like here, right, Evan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're normally in the mega caps. Yeah, and this is a it's an advantage. Actually, we think this is an advantage when you have little amounts of money. And by little, we mean less than a couple of million. And so that's pretty good for most of the people out there. And you find amazing, obvious jewels. Today, you wanted to talk about a stock called Gigamedia. And this one is listed on the NASDAQ under the ticker G-I-G-M. And they're actually operating out of Taiwan. Taiwan, let me put it in. Perfect. Gigamedia. All right. How do you find Gigamedia? Basically, I just found it on our NetHunter uh, shortlist, or sorry, not the shortlist, our raw list, big bulk list of NetNet stocks that I like to comb through. And this one came up. And before, I guess, we talk about the company, I think it's probably worthwhile going over the same background assumptions or background basis that we, we discussed in the last call, just briefly anyways. So, yeah, yeah and then the last call, I mentioned that, you know, again, this is just one stock pick, and I'm pretty agnostic about how it's going to work out as a pick. And I said last time, you know, it's kind of strange. How can you be, you know, how can you really like this stock but be agnostic as to whether it's going to work out or not? And uh, it's a bit of a contradiction. And so I like to think about this in terms of flipping coins. Like, let's say that you have 30 coins on your desk. And they're evenly weighted, they're quarters or whatever. And if you flip one, you know, if it lands heads, you win. If it lands tails, you lose. Let's say that if it lands, you know, heads, you win a hundred bucks or something like that. And so, but instead of flipping regular coins, what we're doing is we're flipping weighted coins. So these have a propensity to land heads. More of them are going to land heads than won't, right? So if you look at, say, your 30 coins, you would expect that over all of those flips, you'll come out ahead, right? And then if you take that same set of 30 coins and you do that an- another set and then another set and then another set, after all those coins, you should come ahead. So Geekamedia is a weighted coin that's stacked in the investor's phaser- favor. And that's how I like to look, about the, uh, look at this type of company. That's a very good explanation to a concept that we call position sizing, which is place to put all your eggs in one basket. And let's, well, there's very few people that do that and are successful like that. But you really, really need to have an advantage versus everybody else in the market. And that's very, sometimes that's even illegal if you're not working for the company. So the best thing to do as an investor, as an outsider, is just to ponder, you know, Diversify, but not too much. What's a good portfolio from your point of view? Well, how many stocks do you have? 
me and my personal portfolio, I try to hold about 10 stocks. And that's very concentrated for a net net investor. And the reason is because I'm doing deep qualitative research. So I want to I want to find companies that have a very good chance of working out as a business. And if they do work out, I want them to have very large upside potential. So mm-hmm. that's Perfect. my preference. For somebody who is not used to net net stocks or just starting out, maybe they have some background with investing, but just not net nets or deep value, you really want to go diverse because you want to minimize the mistakes you make and you want to be able to capitalize on the statistical returns of the type of strategy that you're using. You do that better when you have more stocks. And I also want to mention the strategy that you use. It's robust. We've have talked about it in different podcast episodes. It's yeah. been working for almost 100 years or yeah. more. It yeah. makes complete sense because you're buying a dollar for 50 cents, but you have to wait. Normally, this takes three years, something like that. This is not stock yeah. trading day one, day two, you know? And, and I think the experience... We'll interview other people in trading, but my experience in trading is that people gain a dollar one day to give it back the next one. And it's a race. It's a job. It's another job. But this strategy gives you a lot of space to just sit down and make your money on waiting. Yeah. That's Charlie Meyer says. There's a lot of of people that come to NetHunter from a trading background. And what I hear, I've never been a trader. I I just haven't. (laughs) <laughs> you've been a trader. Mm. I, I just haven't been in that world and and they tell me that you know they're always on they always have to be buying something selling something else it's one of those activities and i just don't want to devote that amount of time to to investing so exactly and um that i that, that's important because in next week we're going to have the best coach in the world on trading i think you're going to love that episode yeah his name is ban tharp and um, I'm going to interview him about trading. Of course, he has, he knows everything about trading, but, yeah. but I come from trading and I can tell you, if you're starting in stocks, stay away from trading. It looks awesome. It looks fancy. Yeah, I can make a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars on in a month and then I'll be financially free, whatever. But it doesn't really work that way. And it's yeah. very, very hard emotionally. But what yeah. you do, it's it's still hard, but because you need a, a longer time frame, but it's safe and secure. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I would say that the activity isn't the diff- difficult part. The strategy isn't the difficult part. Crunching the numbers isn't the difficult part. I mean, you don't need high school mathematics for this. This is elementary school mathematics. The difficult part is having the emotional temperament to first of all buy the company. And second of all, hang on to the company because these are failing firms or firms that are in deep trouble as businesses. And that's why you're seeing the opportunities, right? Exactly. Exactly. So why do you talk? Well, position sizing is super important. Measure your risk and be patient. That's what it's all about, right? Exactly. And we, no, I- we, we talked about diversifying fairly well. We haven't really talked about a time horizon. You know, the strategy, Joel Greenblatt, who is a phenomenal world-class investor, one of the best, he said that a systematic strategy such as net nets, or uh, he uses magic formula stocks, he calls them, worst name for investment strategy ever. (laughs) But uh, 
But he says that, you know, the reason why it's viable over the long term is because it doesn't work in every single year. So you can go through two or three years where it's not working. And a lot of people abandon the strategy and say, oh, this is, you know, this is crap. This is this doesn't work. But what you really have to do is you have to have a long term uh, time horizon about five to 10 years. And that's really the only way that you can guarantee any sort of success. Yeah. And Joel Greenblatt, for people that don't know, it's somebody that started a fund and he was a dean in Colombia, Colombia. Yeah, uh, that was after the fund, actually. I think he I'm not sure where he graduated university from, but he did a thesis on net nets. Mm -hmm. uh, so he did a report and it was in the I think the uh, oh, yeah. journal or something. Then he started a hedge fund and his hedge fund returned something like 50% over 10 years, like 50% compounded. Compounded. Yep. 10 years. It's enormous, enormous. It, uh, it's, I think it's the best one I've seen. Yeah. It's um, beating Buffett. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, and mentioning that for listeners, because that will set perspective into this whole investing thing you know if you can make 50 a year compounded just take your calculator and start adding those numbers you it's huge it's huge but there's a lot of people coming into stocks thinking they're gonna make 10 a day you know forex same thing doesn't work that way take your your little calculator and say if i was doing great for 30 days in a row how much your ten thousand dollars will turn and It's just not realistic. So yeah. we're giving you the best in class is 50% a year. That's the best in class. And if you can master 50% a year, call me. Uh, I definitely yeah. best in your <laughs> fund. I don't think I would, you know, well, for sure, I'm not going to be able to come close to 50% per year. I mean, that's, that, that's really crazy. Just the amount of, you know, just, just how well he did is just, oh yeah, I'm not mind blowing. So. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I Sorry, think you, a couple of people could do it, but you have to aim for companies that are trading for some reason at 30 cents on the dollar and you have a reasonable expectation they're going to go to fair value. Yeah. So in like three or four years, I do have a couple of those in my pocket, but you will have to be super concentrated. Yeah. And uh, that way, maybe you can make 50%, but you, it's in such a, a small amount of money. I couldn't do that with. A million or more. It's just cool. And yeah. Yeah. It's impossible. I mean, I'm not sure how much he had. I think he had in the millions, well, obviously in the millions if he's running a hedge fund. But one of the things that he said in one of his lectures is that he had to close the fund because he just had, you know, too much money. He, re you know, returned capital and he knew that he wasn't going to be able to keep it up with more amounts of money. Warren Buffett's another, another one who said that he could do 50% a year with small amounts of money and i'm not exactly sure what his compound return was before he started his hedge fund but it was pretty good but even you know he ran his hedge fund and buffett's widely regarded as one of the best investors of all time and i think he did 31 or 32 percent compounded over a, you know 10 to 13 year period or something like that and that was pretty outstanding I think that was over 30, 33%. Was it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the individual investors, I think, might have got 29%. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> going off my, <laughs> off my head here. But 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, this yeah. strategy, basically, what Evan's going to talk about, it's pretty close to the best in the world, and you don't have to be a genius to implement it, but you do need character. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a message we're going to give you before telling you about this great stock. <laughs> Definitely. And one thing I recommend to anybody who's thinking about, you know, starting off in stocks and likes the value approach is don't go by what any one person says they're able to do with, you know, their record. Don't go off of any one professional's record. What you want to do is you want to look at the body of knowledge behind the strategy. And then you want to see if people have been able to apply it in practice. So there is, you know, tons of studies on net nets. If you just surf the, the internet and you look up net net uh, stock study or NCAV stock study, you'll find stuff and you can just read it and, and find out for yourself. Yeah, because somebody can be lucky for even a couple of years if you have, I don't know, you and I could be lucky with 10 stocks and yeah. one explodes three, five, 10 times. Yeah. And we have a great track record for the next five years for that. And yeah. it, it was really one lucky pick. Yeah. And you have to look into that first, not just results. You're right. Completely yeah. right. Perfect. What do you got for us today? All right. So Giga Media is a company. It's a game development company based in Taiwan. And they make mobile games. So for distribution on mobile devices throughout East Asia. Primarily, their market is in Taiwan. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the valuation, just give you a sense of uh, the type of positions that I'm looking for for my own portfolio. And the value, sorry, in terms of valuation, we, we have a market cap. So market capitalization, the total value of the company in the market is 28 million. So that's the total value of the company's shares traded in the market. So 28 million, it's a small company. It's definitely a nano cap. It's, it's not your, you know, multi tens of billion dollars Apple or anything like that. It's, it's really only for small investors. Net current asset value comes in at $55 million. And that means that the discount, the price to value discount is something like 49%. So you take your market cap, you divide it by your net current asset value. And that tells you, that gives you a rough idea of valuation. So I, I see here five four four ninety nine versus two two fifty. That means for the people listening, you're buying five dollars for two and a half yeah. for fifty every dollar for fifty cents. You're investing one dollar to get two. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's as a, a minimum. Exactly. You're walking into a store and you're buying stuff for half off. So it's it's pretty good. So with with most companies, they have the net current assets uh, tied up in things like inventory, receivables, uh, prepaid expenses, that sort of thing. But this company has most of its uh, net current asset value in cash. So its current assets are mostly made of cash. And it actually has a net cash position of just over $53 million. So what this means is that you take the company's cash in the bank, you add any sort of term deposits that, that they have, anything that's close to cash, like almost cash, and then you subtract the total liabilities of the company, and that gives you a net amount. And in this case, it's $53 million. So 
if you look at the stock price, you know, or, or the market cap, we're looking at $28 million will buy you $53 million in cash. So in effect, what this means is that if you bought the company outright for this price, that you would get an immediate 100% refund on your purchase price plus extra cash bonus. So I guess wow. at that point, yeah. So at that point, it doesn't even matter if the business would work out or not. You'd still profit. But, you know, <laughs> rings attached to that as a private investor. Mm. Probably not getting direct access or direct control of the cash. So what you're doing is you're buying into a situation where there's kind of a trust official who's in charge of this cash for you. And his title is the CEO. So he makes the decisions about what the company is going to do with the cash on your behalf. So that's the string. That's the big string that's attached to that cash figure. So in this case, you know, we're looking at a situation where your discount, so you're almost getting 100% more cash than the cost of the shares. So, yeah. So, and, and most people, when you talk about this, they tell you you cannot find these kind of stocks. Yeah. And maybe in the US, you cannot, right? That is true. But around the world in Taiwan, you can find this beautiful stuff that used to be able to find back in the day in the US. Yeah, you can find them in the US now. It's just very tough. You know, obviously, if you're buying a company for half the cash that it has in the, in the bank and, you know, no liabilities, that's a hell of a bargain. And so it's not offered every day. You're not going to find it with your typical investment situation. So this is quite unique. And, uh, and why can't you find them? Can you explain us why people can? It's just hard. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to find. If you found a situation like this, say it's a bigger company, what you're going to find is that activist investors will start buying the company, they'll start buying up shares, and they'll start pressuring management to distribute the cash. And so that happens in some situations. The company is a prime takeover target. If you look back in, I believe it was the 1980s, you had a giant leveraged buyout and boom. So a lot of investors were borrowing money at, say, 5%. And then they were going out and they were buying all these cheap assets. So that's a leveraged buyout. In this case, if you could get access to, I don't know, $40 million, for example, and you could offer shareholders $40 million for their shares, you might be able to buy the entire company and then distribute $53 million in cash. So you get the free company plus $13 million. So, yeah, that's the type of thing that would happen. These type of bargains are basically competed away by value-hungry activists clamoring to get their hands on the cash. And, and the reason we are seeing this is because, you know, I mean, or is it too little or there's something wrong with the company, right? I mean, th there's always something wrong with the company. <laughs> the yeah, company is right. trouble. But um, one of the main reasons is... I believe that they're located in Taiwan. And so that might be a problem for some people who are running hedge funds. They have, you know, a market cap of 28 million. So they're not exactly the biggest. They're not on a lot of people's radars. So uh, just, just to clear, clarify this, what do you think is the volume? I mean, the reason people don't go and just start buying this stock is because it's only a couple of thousand stocks per day are available, right? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, 
I looked at the average daily volume over the last three months, and we're sitting at about 68,000. So, you know, if you were to buy all of the company for 28 million and you had to spend $68,000 a day to do it, it would take you years. So, what you would have to do in this case, you have to make a tender offer for stock. And so, a tender offer is basically when you approach, you know, the shareholders of the company and you say, Hey, I'm going to buy or I, I would like to buy your shares for, you know, X amount. Maybe it's 15, 50%, somewhere in there above the current market price. And that will entice them to sell. Say, look, you know, your company has been dying over the last seven years. The stock price hasn't been over, you know, $3 in, in six years. I'm willing to pay you $7 or something, mm -hmm. you know, some, or um, $4. <laughs> and normal, normally activists or people that can do that, they start buying shares till they have over 5%. When they have 5% of the company, they have to declare, I don't know if that's the case here in, in, in the stock market in Taiwan, but in the US, you have to declare A, raise your hand to, to the government and say, I own more than 5% and these are my intentions, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you get a seat on the board and then you have influence and you can see closely, closer what's going on. I'm not 100% sure on Giga Media's situation, but I don't think that they have to go through the same... They don't, they're not subject to the same rules as mm -hmm. just, you know, a regular company that's operated in the US and traded on the NASDAQ. So, yeah, you'll notice that on their investor relations page of their website, they, they publish different, different sorts of reports. So they're not your regular 10K or 10Q that you get with a regular company. So that's the annual and quarterly financial statements and financial reports. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Right. I'm sorry I cut you off. So yeah. you, that's why we're seeing this opportunity because it's tiny, basically. Yeah. Okay. Tiny based company traded in the US. So that's basically what I would put it down to. Now, looking at the company's balance sheet, you know, obviously, if the company has a ton of net cash, then their ratios, their balance sheet is going to be very, very solid. So uh, we see exactly that. And we see a current ratio of 16 times. And so your current ratio measures the liquidity of the, of the balance sheet. So basically, the company has short-term obligations it has to pay, and it has a certain amount of liquid assets that it can use to pay those obligations. And so in this case, it's mostly cash. There's a lot of it. And the current ratio comes out to 16 times. So current ratio, current assets divided by current liabilities. And then we have the quick ratio. And the quick ratio is basically your current ratio, but we're excluding inventory from that and uh, things like prepaid. So it's mostly cash, cash equivalent, securities short-term uh, securities receivables and we so that that's important because the quality of the cash they have cash in us in a company can come in different forms as you mentioned it can come as inventory it, it can yeah. come as uh you know pay pieces of paper of ious or yeah. people owe me but what we're seeing here is that they have cash that's supposed to convert really fast and that's good because that's exactly what you want to see Exactly. So what we talked about last time is that sometimes a company will have inventories and those inventories can be worth more or less than the stated values. They can be quite different. 
the example I used last time, I think, was Alanis Morissette cassette tapes. You know, those yeah. aren't going to be worth a lot. Uh, and it might be tough to move. So if you're looking at a liquidity situation where the company's current assets are made up almost entirely of Alanis Morissette cassette tapes, it might be really tough to cover your short-term obligations. So the fact that this is mostly in cash, these assets are mostly in cash, make liquidity a non-issue. So the quick ratio comes in at 16 times identical to the current ratio. And uh, it's just no, it's a non-factor. In terms of debt to equity, we're really looking at a no debt company. So it has, you know, minimal long-term liabilities, tons of cash. This is basically a cash bank account that's traded on the NASDAQ. That's essentially what this company is. Well, what about their operations? Yes, they have operations, but they only amount to, you know, over the last 12 months, trailing 12 months, we're looking at $6.8 million in revenue. And when you compare, you know, $6.8 million compared to net cash of $53 million, I'm not sure off the top of my head, was that 15% or something like that, or 30%. But you know, operations are tiny compared to the amount of net cash it has. So while it does have operations, something to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that the company has no net profit. So the company is losing money. They're losing about $2 million a year. That effectively means that that net cash pile is decreasing by roughly $2 million per year. So as the company sorry, loses money, it has to, you know, pay people and it doesn't have the cash coming in. So they have to take it out of the bank account to do that. So there's a slow cash burn, I'll call it. Again, this is a really, really tiny business and they're trying to turn it around. And I guess that's where we can talk about the company's actual business now that we've laid out the numbers. The interesting part. Yeah, the interesting part. So the question when you're buying a company below net cash that you always have to ask is, what's the company going to do with the cash? You know, is it going to, is it going to waste the money on stupid acquisitions? Are going to be, are they going to be, you know, throwing, um, you know, parties with champagne and imported elephants? You know, are they just going to be, you know, paying directors insane amounts of money? In this case, the firm does have a history of making some pretty stupid acquisitions. They've made a number of them and they, they haven't really panned out. And so, you know, over the last six years, it destroyed a lot of value. And I think that that's caused investors to kind of be pessimistic on the stock. But in 2017, we had a management change. So the head guy changed and we have a new guy, new CEO. I think he's also the CFO. If I, I can't remember quite correctly, but uh, I think he took over CEO, CFO, and president positions. So he is the de facto emperor of Gigamedia. And he seems to have a tighter acquisition discipline. So what he's been trying to do, again, this is a gaming company, they, they develop mobile games. He's been trying to get the company back into a profitable position by focusing on higher margin games and that sort of thing. And he has, uh, I'll just read a little bit of his background here. So one of the notes I put down is he graduated from MIT with a master's in management. So right away, you know, 
he's not a clown. He's not, you know, somebody that came Smart from, guy. yeah, he didn't come Smart from, guy. from, you know, the forestry industry as a logger or something and decide to, to manage a gaming company. MIT is, you know, widely regarded. He has 30 years in finance, investments, and in direct marketing. So, yeah, he has a lot of experience, a lot of skills, at least with the numbers and, and direct marketing. And he was a president of an investment company for eight years before joining Giga Media. Now, I looked and I couldn't find his investment record. Couldn't find what the company's uh, record was, but that's at least his background information. He has good experience, but we don't know how well he's done in the past. So that's an unknown factor. So right now, you know, the company has been trying to put more money and more development effort into their legacy games and also develop games for women. Because, you know, one of the, I think, more recent phenomenons that you'll notice in the gaming world is that women are really, uh, really starting to uh, take to gaming especially with uh, mobile devices. We've noticed that more and more. Gaming used to be primarily male-dominated, you know, with your Nintendo 64 and, you know, Ataris and all that, and PC games. Definitely that is changing. And so they think that there is an untapped market or a market that's underserved in the female gaming community or uh, for female gamers. And so that's really what they've been targeting there. Now, all of this is great, but what their main project that they've been working on over the last year is a, a platform for their current following, I will say, their, their current customers. So Giga Media has, if I'm looking at trying to get the exact number for you here, I believe they have 8 million active buyers so these are people that are um oh, sorry i shouldn't say 8 million i think they have 40 million they have 40 million active customers so these are people that are buying from the company on a regular basis it's not a lot you know 40,000 is not a lot of people to be buying from this company especially if they're small purchases i believe they have roughly 8 million recorded customers who are non-buyers. So these are maybe people that signed up for their platform or signed into something and you know they're they haven't really been buying anything, they haven't bought anything in the past, that sort of thing. So there's a, a large amount of people that they could possibly market to, you know, however they have their current uh, contact information. Maybe it's through push notifications or email or whatever. But what they've wanted to do is they wanted to monetize this by creating a new platform. And the platform, I talked to the investor relation department. They said, well, it's really a website. And I said, okay, well, what type of website is it? What are you going to do? They're like, well, yeah, we're going to offer games, but we're also going to sell merchandise. So, you know, if, if they find a way to reactivate, first of all, sell more to the 40,000 that they do have. And then re or to get uh, some of those 8 million on board as paying customers, you know, that could go somewhere. I also talked to the IR department about possible dividends and buybacks, and it was a no go. So they're absolutely not interested in returning the cash to investors. At least that's what the IR department told me. And, you know, it's 
often really difficult for a CEO or a management team to want to return cash to shareholders because that means shrinking their empire, right? Right now, they're looking at the balance sheet and they have $53 million in net cash. And they're, you know, going through their minds. They're thinking, oh, we could do this and we could do that. And generally, you know, the company, as I mentioned, has tried acquisitions in the past and burned shareholders' money. So that's always the risk. But, you know, share buybacks and recapitalization or distribution to shareholders is pretty much out of the question at this point. That may change in the future. One thing that we do notice with this company is that the CEO has been buying a lot of shares over the past two years. So I think they he owns roughly 8% of the outstanding shares now. And that amounts to 2.2 million US. So, you know, he's dumped a lot of his own personal money into buying shares on the open market. So at least the new CEO thinks that he has something and that the, that the company is going to, you know, do pretty well going forward. So strong vote of confidence, at least $2.2 million worth. One thing that could happen, and this is pure speculation, is at some point in the future, if he's done, you know, buying shares for himself, he could return capital to shareholders, you know, half the cash. And in doing so, that would essentially give him free ownership in the company. So, you know, he bought all these shares. I'm not sure how many... I think it's about 900,000 shares. If he returned half of the cash to shareholders, then effectively he would have $900,000 in free shares. So from a personal incentive point of view, it could change in the future. But what they have said, uh, or at least what I can remember them saying is that they expect to do some acquisitions in the future. And so what they want to do is probably build out this platform and then acquire offerings to offer it to people on the through the website. So that's basically how I see things unfolding. Do we know how much he's paying himself? Not off the top of my head. Uh, Mr. Juan Cheng Ming. Yes, that's him. And I didn't say his name because I didn't I didn't want to, you know, mispronounce it by accident oh, yeah. oh okay i thought i made a legal mistake no i'm sorry by the way mister but uh, i pronounce everybody's name wrong <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah it happens to be all the time yeah. um, um so one of the notes that i put down here is that the directors are total management and director compensation for i think this was 2008 came to about half a million dollars so very small so it doesn't seem like he's paying himself a huge amount of money. So he's not he's not screwing shareholders that way. <laughs> Hold on, he, but he's he, he's making half a million dollars, right? No, that's um so I don't have the numbers for 2019. For the 2018, I saw that total management and director compensation amounts to about five hundred thousand dollars. Oh, total management. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah, quite, yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's quite that's quite low, which is a positive sign. Generally, what you want is you want a company that is majority owned by the top management, and then, or not majority owned, but they have a, a large chunk of their own personal money tied into the company, and that gives that sets their incentives more in line with shareholders. 
alternatively having stock, you know, stock options that were reward uh, the company getting back to, um, you know, good operating results. Also great to see. Awesome. So when they view, is this in your personal portfolio or something you really like? This is in a portfolio that I manage for clients. It's not in my own personal portfolio. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Pardon me? What's the difference between the two portfolios? Size, basically. So my portfolio is smaller, so I can buy smaller companies. That, that is unfortunately true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that is the case. Generally speaking, I like buying as small companies as I possibly can for my own personal portfolio. Just because smaller companies, especially when you're dealing with cigar butts, they just they tend to have more explosive upside. And so, you know, if you get a company that has a market cap of two and a half million dollars, which is incredibly tiny, and then they, you know, come across a contract where, you know, maybe they got a government contract or they got a new deal selling through Walmart or something like that, and that contract's good for five million in sales, you know, that stock's going to climb really quickly. But it's not, it's not the case for much larger stocks. So the typical large company stock, you know, say if it's priced at a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars stock is not going to go up, you know, five times that easily. Whereas if you have, you know, a stock that's, let's say, you know, five cents, five times is nothing it happens all the time. So yeah, that's, that's basically what I like. Okay. Very good. Interesting, interesting. Thank you very much, Evan, and uh, hope listeners are taking notes because this is a strategy that I've studied. I don't know. I think you studied this for seven years, right? Before since, since 2010, yeah. And then I, I started going really, really deep in 2011, 2012, and you know, trying to learn as much as I could about it. Yep, yep, yep. Me too. I, I really, I'm actually talking to you. I'm actually thinking about going back to NetNets. Because it's very interesting. That'd be awesome, That'd be awesome yeah. to have you. Yeah, yeah, we will. We will. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. That's everything for today. And I want to, again, thank you so much for your time, Evan. I know it's like Sunday, 10 p.m., back, back where you are. And uh, thank you for your time, brother. I always appreciate it. I wouldn't be anywhere else. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're home. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, where can people find you? Uh, go to NetNet Hunter, and so that's netnethunter.com. We have a lot of free articles. Uh, if you're interested in NetNets or cigar butt investing or value investing, definitely read through a lot of the free content that we have there. And then if you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, I recommend signing up for our free newsletter. You can find that on you know any article. But that would be the best way just to learn as much as you can before deciding whether the strategy is right for you or not. All right. And this is, by the way, people, this is the way the best investor in the world started in the 50s, right? Yeah. Warren Buffett used to do this day in and day out. And now you can do it with a subscription through the internet while he was just turning pages, 10,000 pages, you know, all day long. And now yep. you can have it with a couple of clicks. Thank you so much, Evan. Have a great You're day. Welcome. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Did you learn something today? How can you apply your insights? What's next for you? The fastest way to make things happen is to just share this podcast episode with more people that may find it valuable too. Talk about it with them and surround yourself with like-minded people. Hope you found this valuable. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.